Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The critical part of this sector is do we get care right and is that care consistent for everyone, regardless of their means, regardless of where they're coming, regardless of where they live in Australia? Every Australian deserves, when they become older, to have access to quality care. Your window for career-ending statements has opened. (laughs) Hello, lovely people of podcasts, and welcome to another episode of Australian Politics Live. You are with Catherine Murphy, the political editor of Guardian Australia, and it's my great pleasure to have a couple of Liberal MPs with me in the studio this week. And this episode, we're actually going to take, you know, 25 minutes, half an hour to think about aged care, which I think is one of the more important stories, policy stories, that will play out, well, really over the, over, over several decades, but I mean interesting things are going to happen, I think, over the next 12 months. We've got a Royal Commission, which I think a lot of listeners will, will be aware of, uh, will be aware of some of the arguments that have been put before the Royal Commission, will be aware that the Royal Commission has released some interim reports. The two MPs I have with me have a particular interest in aged care, which is why I've grabbed them into the studio. So, Katie Allen... Tell the folks why who you are and why you're interested in aged care. Thanks, Catherine. Well, I'm the member for Higgins in Melbourne and I have a background as a paediatrician and a medical researcher actually in public health. And I've got a real personal interest in aged care, having had a father who had Alzheimer's and was in, an, in a high care dementia unit for the number of years before he died. And like millions of Australians care about the older generation and our future because all of us are going to need it sometime in the future. Mm. So I'm interested at a policy level, but I think it's one of the biggest things that we're facing mm. um, as, a, as Australia, but also as a developed country. Yeah, absolutely. As, a, as an economy, as a society. Jason? Uh, so Jason Falinski, member for McKellar, which is on the northern beaches of Sydney. My interest was that uh, before entering parliament, I ran a business that manufactured healthcare equipment and furniture. Their overwhelming customer base was aged care providers and operators Mm -hmm. and also at some at-home providers as well. So for roughly 15 years, I got to see from the inside what was happening to our aged care system. Well, that's a, that's a good... Actually, I should add that I was on the board of Cabrini Health, which is um, the major hospital uh, in, in Higgins. Um, and I remember you know, five years ago at our strategic retreat, we were talking about the concept of healthcare as seeing more complex health conditions and why we weren't thinking of ourselves as a more community-minded aged care provider, because we do have aged care facilities in Cabrini Health as well, so right. how we view it. So I was sort of seeing it from 
on the health side, not necessarily the aged care side, but there's definitely a collision between health absolutely. and aged care that's yeah. coming at us at speed. Yeah, absolutely, and we, let's, we will get into that. Jason's given us a good thought. You've seen aged care from the inside and a lot of people listening obviously will have experiences like Katie's with their parents in aged care facilities. You've seen it from the inside, Jason. What's the view? Look, I think the view, so really I haven't been heavily involved in aged care since I got elected to parliament. So from about 2000 to 2015, there was a massive improvement in the level of care and services that we provided older Australians. I think the other thing to keep in mind is that very few Australians will end up in an aged care facility. About seven for every thousand people over the age of 70 are in an aged care facility in Australia. But what you did see was that we really have quite limited understanding and scope of aged care in Australia compared to other countries in the world. Having said that, our system, in my humble view, is probably the best in the world. Mm. And when you go to places like Europe and you go to places like China and you go to places like North America, they all look at Australia and say, well, that's the system that we want to get to. Having said that, I really think the best example that I've seen of aged care or integrated care for older people is the Humanitas project in Holland. And so a lot of uh, experimentation that could go on in Australia doesn't go on because of the way that we regulate the system. For example, putting together childcare and aged care. We had that great documentary on the ABC, I think, last year. And the benefits, I think, of co-locating those two care environments are enormous. And there's a whole bunch of stuff that Humanitas does that, that we could look at doing here in Australia. Such as, I'll bring Katie in, but such as? Look, our view of aged care in Australia, or my observation of aged care in Australia, and you see this most pronounced in rural and regional towns, is that we kind of build an aged care facility and behind that wall is where we care for older Australians. Mm -hmm. The Humanitas Project basically says, no, the aged care facility or the aged care centre should be the hub of the local community. So you bring the community in and their elderly are fully integrated or as integrated as they possibly can be with the life of the surrounding areas. And they have a whole series of problems. For example, each one of their rooms has a fold-out couch. Mm -hmm. Now, the point of that is so family members can regularly come and spend the night with their uncle, aunt, mother, father. You know, the cafes on the bottom floor are not just open for people in the facility to go and have food. They're there for everyone in the mm. local community to come and do that. So, they're, I mean, it's it's difficult in these sort of podcasts to, or, or you know, in these sort of environments to describe fully what they do, mm. but there are thousands of little ideas built on top of each other that actually make sure that, that the care for the elderly is fully integrated with the community in which um, it is located. Mm -hmm. And Katie, what's been your vantage point of how the sector is sitting at this point in time? Yeah, I suppose I've sort of come from, you know, health and Cabrini Health has aged care facilities. So as a board member of Cabrini, we were looking at how do we deal across the sectors because health and aged care are obviously separated and then there's federal and state funding, which again mm. is separated. But mm. I'd kind of take a step back and say that if you look at, you know, internationally, every developed country is now dealing with this aged care care baby boomer bubble coming at us at speed. And we know in Australia that that uh, is going to some, be something as particularly 
uh, the baby boom has reached eighty, you know, the eighty-five critical point. Yeah. I think the thing that's worth noting is that Australians rightly have an expectation of a certain level of quality of care, and if you look across the sector, there is variability in the quality. Mm. So we do have a private-public sort of balance, like we do for health and education. So there's obviously private healthcare, for-profit, not-for-profit, and then there's state-based healthcare. And there's a, there's a little bit of politicisation about which of those are good. In fact, I think there's there's good examples in all of those different sectors. And I personally think choice is actually something that's u- that is useful for the Australian public to think about because I think there's a difference between city-based care and regional-based mm. care and the way mm. that that is going to be provided. But if you step back and look at, you know, this baby boomer bubble coming at us at speed, what we're also seeing is the federal government responding by changing the way they're providing care and more emphasis in home care. Yes. Now, that is something that's definitely come coming from you know, the community. That's what people want. They want to live longer in their own home. They also want to actually die in their home. Yeah. And so hospital in the home is now reaching into homes. Aged care is reaching into homes. And as a result of quite a significant expansion in in-home provision of support, what we're seeing is people are now getting to aged care facilities at an older age and a more frail age. Mm. And that has actually an impact on sort of the business model of those um, residents facilities as well. And so you're seeing that they're becoming a new kind of environment where the Australian population is ageing at speed, but the aged care residential facilities are ageing at even greater speed. So I've kind of argued that we kind of think of them as homes. We want them to have the care of hospital sort of quality care. Mm. So why don't we think about them more as hospices? Now, hospices hospices suggest they're waiting waiting places, which I would never want to do. So let's take that word away because it's Mm. all very loaded. But I think as Australians, you know, what we want is stay in our home as long as as possible and have the support and love and care of our family, but also, you know, for the government to provide those sort of minimal standards and support to keep us there. And then if we do need to go into a home that it is of quality care, that's almost of a hospital standard. So I know the word hospice is very loaded, but the concept uh, is that it needs to be a quality of care that we deserve and expect. And the question will be, how do we fund that? Yeah, look, it's really interesting too. I, I heard one of the Prime Minister's radio interviews because obviously there's a blitz of interviews that happened during Budget Week. There was obviously funding in the budget for more in-home aged care places. But the Prime Minister said in one of the interviews, one of the issues, it's not, it's not only money, and we will get to money, but it's not only money that is the reason why we can't just wipe out the waiting list, because the waiting list is about 100,000 people at the moment. It's also because we have to care for elderly people in their homes. And there's a workforce preparation issue in front of us as well. It's sort of like, you know, there's, I think the costs of wiping wiping out the uh, the waiting list, according to the health department, is about two to two and a half billion a year on current waiting list rates. Um, there's but, also but, a difference in that waiting list. I mean, the waiting list is not the, you know, people are put on the waiting list in anticipation and they yeah. move through a journey as well. So the waiting list is more complicated you know, oh, sure. as a whole of the Sure, sure, sure. I guess the the point I'm trying to flag is that we've got, we've got the baby boomer bulge, as you say. We're going to have demand for high intensity care. Let's not word, use the word hospice, but high intensity care for towards the end of life. We've got a model now emerging where people will be in their homes if if that's possible with with out of home care, right? That that's kind of ramping up slowly. But 
there's a workforce issue for both high-intensity care and home care. So how do we set about dealing with that workforce issue? Yeah, and that's absolutely, I mean, I think this government's got that pretty much front and centre and there is funding millions of dollars put aside particularly for that. It's important also that, you know, we know with this recent COVID pandemic, there's been a lot of uh, in-reach care going on. So local hospitals and local GPs have been reaching more into, into aged care facilities to provide the support and care that's needed. And we've also seen a lot of transfer of staff between the two sectors, the sector and mm. the aged care sector because mm. of the one employer, one provider rules that were applied, particularly through the community yeah. transmission and that's outbreak. Just, if people don't understand that, that's just so workers don't bring COVID into facilities and well, work across. Well, they do bring. Work, but no, 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 they, no, that's the point. No, they no, do bring it in. No, no, but work across multiple facilities. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's to, to limit transmission yeah, thank you. so that yeah. one, one, one worker is in one facility so that it's not being spread to another yes. facility because, in fact, that's the very point. We know that's how it got into these aged care services is because it was coming in through the community transmission as it got into the healthcare sector almost at equal rates, actually. So as a marker of whether aged care is good or not based on COVID, it's actually been misrepresented in my view, is that the, the reason it gets in is because there's community transmission as it gets into healthcare as well. well we, uh, and in fact, if you look at the fatality rates in Australia in the aged care sector, as dreadful as every single you know, fatality is, mm. that's behind it is families and friends and loved ones who've lost oh, you know, very dear ones. They're, they're horrendous stories. Yeah. But actually, if you look at our our fatality rates, we've got the low, you know, if not the lowest, one of the lowest in the world, 15 times lower than Canada and 30 times lower than Italy and 55 times or 53 times lower than the UK. And we have an overall low mortality rate across the healthcare sector. And of course, it's concentrated in the aged care sector because that's where COVID mm. was concentrating its fatalities because it's people who are older. Yeah. So, so it wasn't a reflection of necessarily a poor aged care sector. It was a reflection of community transmission outbreak. Not to say there's not issues with mm. aged care, but the, the the public possibly are seeing that in the light that's not reflective of the aged care sector I and the care that people had. No, no. I and the point I was going to make about yeah. that, because it's taking a while to get to no, that, no, sorry, no, no. is that, you know, I think the, the sector is taking a bit of a reputational beating. Mm. People are hearing, you know, how difficult it is to work in these areas. And in fact, I think we just need to turn around because there's a lot of wonderful opportunities for people to train and to become aged care workers. And I think it's a little bit reflective of the way the community sees working in that sector. I think it's taken a bit of a a negative. Well, well, it's a conundrum though, isn't it? Because I think a lot of people, both humans, hello everyone listening, humans, (laughs) who are trying to deal with their lives and the complexity of their lives. And a lot of people just terrified and worried about how to manage their elderly parents. So that, so there's, there's a sort of groundswell there, then there's an advocacy groundswell, right? I think probably I accept what you're saying, Katie, that it's a more complex picture than the, than the one that is necessarily being beamed out of mainstream media every day, right? But I think what has actually been useful about, let's call it the COVID experience, is that it is focusing national attention on an issue which I find unfathomably cannot grab national attention, yeah. even though... Which is a good thing, right? Well, it's a good no, thing that's because I mean. that's, that's yes, what it's going to bring attention, yes. the spotlight to something yes. that we are facing exactly. into the future. So, and, yes. and so the other point about the workforce, though, is that the nurses who did go into the aged care sector thought they sort of, you know, this is just you know personal anecdote from colleagues and friends in, in Higgins, is that they kind of were surprised about how they, they didn't have the skills for aged care, the mm. different skill set. Mm, exactly. And I think the government does recognise there needs to be particular training pathways and that we 
need to make sure that those accredited tra- pathways are being, you know, joined um, yes, in joined enthusiasm. Yeah, yeah. But the other thing I don't think people have really noted too much, and I'm not sure how official this is, but, you know, we have a very high you know, overseas working population yes. in aged care. And yes. with the changes to the numbers of people coming from overseas, yeah, exactly. we're going to need more people who are local mm. putting their hand up. So Absolutely. this is a great opportunity. It's lovely working in the aged care sector. Join up now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> There's no, a job. <laughs> no, it's true. I, I have a very good friend, actually, who's a woman from the Philippines who um, – who, while she was building up her business, she's a hairdresser by trade, and while she was building up her business, she worked nights in aged care in order to save enough money to basically purchase her small business. She doesn't work nights anymore, but it was an entirely migrant workforce who did overnights in dementia care mm. in Canberra at that time. And this like my mate Mel is a hero. Hello, Mel. You but rock. those those but, those communities value aged care. So that you know Japanese community, Filipino communities, I mean China China uh, hasn't had an aged care. And Tibetan, yeah, but, yeah, yeah and the, the China <laughs> hasn't had an aged care sector because no, families, families do look it. after yeah. it because it's a valued Yes. It's a it's a valued career. Yes, exactly. But let's get to money. I yeah, mean, it's sure. more, it's obviously more complicated and, you know, like bring, bring in any threads that I'm not steering our collective ship to. But pick up that point of Katie's about, you know, aged care in some other cultures is dealt with through families, that there's not this sort of social infrastructure, call it that, right? Yep. In the productivity economy in Australia, that's yep. a bit different. And and there are obviously cultural factors as well, right? Yep. So, look, I think... And between, women returning to work. And women returning to work. Well, exactly. Increased participation is excellent, but yeah. it's leaving no, no, side no, effect. Sure. Exactly. That's exactly. That's exactly right. So, I think we could probably agree among the three of us that whatever rolls out in the future, significant dollars are attached to it uh, in order to deal with elderly Australians who have spent their entire working lives and caring lives contributing to the country, right? No one wants mum eating cat food. No one wants that, right? So how do we fund it? Because I think you guys have got some interesting thoughts about that. Me? Me? Start? Uh, you yeah. go. Well, you're the economic guru. Oh, no. You go. You go. Go on, Jason. Uh, well, look, without wishing to upset Amy, hello, Amy. Um, <laughs> uh, yes, we do have to sometimes put a price on healthcare. Um, and what I think we actually have here is a question of fairness and intergenerational fairness as well. So you've got a generation of Australians who are sitting on very large asset bases and how you actually fund that healthcare from a generation of Australians that have found it, well, look, the figures are clear. The level of people who are able to enter the housing market has been declining each decade. So you have that intergenerational fairness question that you need to answer. The way that we have done that in Australia is to have a, about 40% of our places are heavily subsidised in aged care and then 60% are open to bonds, which assist the aged care provider in terms of paying for capital equipment and making buildings and things like that. That is why our system is considered one of the best in the world. So, for example, in Germany, they simply do not have enough places and they locate a lot of people needing aged care in places like Thailand, for example. That's how they're dealing with that situation at the moment. So our system has worked pretty well in that regard. The question with at-home care is I have a series of 
queries about it and and some genuine worries about mm-hmm. it in the sense that you have a lot of people who are now who want to stay in their own homes i get that we as a community and a government want to make sure that people have as many choices as they have in terms of how they care for themselves the issue is that there comes a point as i think Katie is gently suggesting that some people stay in their own homes beyond the yeah, time that they long. should yeah. secondly i have observed when i've done door knocking for election campaigns and outreaches generally that there are a lot of people in five-bedroom, four-bedroom houses on their own who have now become socially isolated. Mm. And there are a lot of people in three-bedroom apartments with three kids who are not socially isolated but are, um, you know... Can't afford four- and five-bedroom homes. Are not in suitable housing, Mm. let's put it that way. So those are really big questions for us, I think, as a community to answer. And the other thing about at-home care is that um, I I don't have the figures in front of me, but a lot of it isn't actually about care. A lot of it is about home services. So cooking, gardening, building maintenance. A lot of the people on that 100,000 list actually already have a package but want to upgrade it or have been assessed as having a higher package. And, of course, the thing that we know about healthcare is that it is an elastic demand. So the more resources you provide to it, the more demand you create. So I really query when Treasury says, well, look, you know, $2.5 billion would wipe out the list. I think you would just create more demand for that service. So the question that we really have is giving people more of an opportunity to provide and plan for their own care later in life. I think the Singaporean government idea of health savings accounts mm-hmm. are excellent ways of going because it actually gets people Ex- not so yep, sorry don't yep. don't assume Jason explain what that explain what Singapore does So Singapore has well Katie, you know, should. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, I mean, it's this sort of concept of, I suppose, as liberals, we think insurance for your future is not a bad way to think about things. Um, it's kind of what our healthcare system has, which is I kind of come with that health lens because I happen to think our public-private balance in health and education is probably the best balance in the world. You don't have the US, which is privatised, and the UK, which is completely publicised. Yes. So we tend to do those private-public balances really well in this country, and I think aged care is something that's coming at us at speed. Why not do the same thing and we already have it. So let's build that out. And so, uh, you know, ensuring for your future, I suppose. And so, yeah, if, if, if the government provides a basic level, let's call it a bronze level, mm-hmm. and then if you want to insure for silver and gold, then you can insure for the, the sort of the more sophisticated hotel kind of facility. Yeah, yeah. But, of course, we'd have to have, you know, u- universal coverage of that sort of lowest bronze Maybe you should call it silver, golden, platinum. Oh, no, no, I don't think anything. <laughs> I, I understand what you mean, that, that, that there's a universal provision and then if you want to top up your universal provision, you go for it. So recently, how do you pay for yeah, it? How do you question. do it? Yeah. So the Royal Commission has recently turned its attention to that and we've had some interesting commentary from you know pretty senior political figures. I think Paul Keating made a comment about a hex type of scheme, yep. which is once you've died, then your um, basically your assets, your house or whatever, uh, gets used to pay for for it. Yep. Um, uh, if I was going to be cynical, you could say it's kind of like a you know a death, a death tax. Oh, and, let's, uh, let's not if go. I was going to be cynical about it, but what I would well, say is not, that you're that not is cynical, Katie. So <laughs> let's not let's not call it. But but I think it politically it'd be it would be a little bit of a difficult. Sure, sell no, that no, one. no, no, not no, to no, say that that no. doesn't sometimes happen. Actually, no. in some ways, but I think there was a hypothecated levy that was put forward uh, by a professor from you know, University of New South Wales, which is kind of like a Medicare yep. levy. I actually think that um, the concept of we're now talking about the super guarantee rise, which is a cr- incredibly politicised football at this point yeah. in time. But the point about superannuation is about putting aside 
you know, something for the future. That's yep. a you know, way we see things liberally. Yep. And that super guarantee rise, which is due to go up next year of 0.5%, if you put that aside, if the population put aside 0.5% of their super guarantee for their aged care provision, that would probably cover know, it. Cover it. Mm. Um, so it, it seems to me quite a simple solution and something that would prepare for the future. Now, that's what Eldershield does, which is an insurance scheme that puts aside 0.5% for your future and it starts at age 40. Mm-hmm. I think they're, they're having to bring it back down to age 30 because of this elastic band sort of concept. So the problem with all of the different funding models that I've looked at across the world, whether you know, the Japanese one that's predicated on the German one or whether it's the, the Singaporean one, is it seems that once you start, you can't stop. So mm. I think I would concur that with that with Jason. It is a difficult issue because it is going to keep getting bigger, not just mm. because people are ageing, but expectations the, continue the, to increase. The other and that's why we like the partnership model because if you've got some skin in the game, you're paying for some of it yourself and the government's paying for it, then it gives that yes. sort of... Yeah. Uh, well, the, there's the price incentives are right. Price incentives yeah. the, the other two yeah. huge advantages about it is that, or that I like about it, is that you are having to make a contribution which forces you to start thinking about what sort of lifestyle you want in your mm. retirement mm. or in your f- final years, if I can be that blunt. Mm. The second thing it does, which we, the, the other great thing about the Australian system, is that 40% of our places are subsidised. 60% are kind of open market, charge the bond rate that you want to. But the benefit to the entire community is that that 60% kind of drags everyone up. So you've got providers out there in like Cabrini Health, uh, not-for-profits, religious, for-profits, and a lot of the improvements I have to say in the aged care sector have been driven by the for-profits driving everyone up the quality level. Uh, quality. Well, they've got they've got some interesting innovation, and to be fair, I know they're sort of sort of often framed as being completely profiteering, but they've got to compete against not, not against not for profits, and they don't have the same tax sort of um, breaks arrangements, that, yeah, yes. arrangements yeah. that the not for profits get. So they have to be there. I think it's what twelve percent behind already. So in order to to be competitive and to be profitable, they actually have had to innovate. So you see a lot, and this is what happens in the healthcare system as well, and we're seeing it in the healthcare system with private. Is that the private the Privates go. Well, we've we've got to we've got to make that profit. Therefore, we've got to innovate, and that's a great way to then for that to roll into the public system as mm, a result. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of opportunity for innovation to come into aged care, and it has been slow to innovate. So health savings account actually mm-hmm. creates that capacity for those of us with more means to save more, which will then drive the entire system um, up the you know, up the curve, if I can put it that way. Yeah. I think at the moment, a lot of the feedback I get from uh, people who are sort of balancing these issues at the moment is that the system as it is, is great if you're wealthy, if if you've got means, very, very good. If you're very poor, if you have very limited means, also pretty good. Where, Where things are difficult is if you're in the middle of those two, where you don't have the means to stump up a a bond worth, you know, a couple hundred thousand or whatever, right, is required. You, you just don't have those means. And we know from a lot of, you know, the, the, the biggest vulnerability in the population at the moment talking about this demographic bulge is, is women. Women, yep. who, absolutely. Who don't. That's right. You know, who, a, they've who been have renting for whatever been reason. Been renting, yep. have poor superannuation because they've had disrupted yes. work patterns. You know, it's, oh, God. Anyway, but uh, so it's sort of like... Do you think that it would, uh, looking at it from an equity perspective, I'm sorry, I am one of those cuddly equity people. (laughs) 
No. No, no, well, we all We are. believe in the we're, good safety yeah, net, so we, equitable we, we safety are, net. We all are in this room. Yeah. I'm joking, right? We, we all believe in price incentives in this room and we all we also will believe in equity. But, but that, you know, do you think this model, and it's obviously not the only model, and we've sadly only got half an hour in this conversation, it's probably 30 models we could go through, right? Yep. But do you think that that would address... <laughs> Like it, it helps you obviously if you're a, if you've got the means to provision for your care. What happens to people who don't have the means to provision? Well, I think you've care? actually said it though, because you've said if you don't have the means, you're okay. Yes. If you do have well, the means, the so, so what you're talking about is actually, I think there's a there's a bit of a, a regulator issue at the moment. So my understanding is the you know introduction of the aged care and quality and safety commissioners is, is very welcomed. And when I speak to my CEOs of different providers in Higgins, they talk to me about it's it, it still needs a bit more maturity. I've got a fantastic CEO who's worked in the healthcare sector as a CEO, but she's also worked in the profit and the not-for-profit sector in aged care. And she said, when you work with the healthcare commissioner, it's about engaging in increasing value of standards or increasing safety and standards, sorry, and um, or quality and standards. Uh, but in the aged care, it's kind of one strike and you're out. And so they're all petrified of being assessed. And so what happens is there are those facilities that have a sophisticated response that are prepared and, and, and have this great quality and safety safety approach. And Mm. then there are some providers that are still very poor quality and the commission isn't actually helping them to increase their standards. So I think there's there's inconsistency of standards Mm. and that's where I see the commission providing an opportunity to help lift the standards to make sure that they're all across the board because you can actually get some really good quality in the sort of you know, as you'd say, one end of the sector. Yeah. And so it's, the quality issue is just an inconsistency of quality, not necessarily one one particular yeah. one over another. Yeah. So there is inconsistency of quality in all of the sectors. Uh, I'd say actually the for-profit sector has more consistency of quality because it has kind of a critical mass to do that. It's often the smaller operators mm. that haven't got the ability to increase their quality and mm. their safety. Mm. So I would, I would go a little bit further than Katie to your question, Catherine, which mm. is, my problem with the Royal Commission is the last group of – this is a very – the critical part of this sector is do we get care right and is that care consistent for everyone, regardless of their means, regardless of where they're coming, regardless of where they live in Australia. Now, that doesn't mean that the care is going to be exactly the same wherever you are mm. because that's just not possible. No, sure. However – Every Australian deserves, when they become older, to have access to quality care. The problem that we've got in the aged care system at the moment is too much box ticking, which has been driven by this place and driven, frankly, by a lot of advocates. And so what has happened is a lot of providers have got very good at being able to answer questions that gets the box ticked. Exactly. Mm. The Royal Commission, I fear is only going to add to that. I I don't think that a legal framework is the right way to look at how do we provide better and more robust systems of care for people who are, frankly, vulnerable. And regardless of what your means or resources are, everyone by that stage of their life becomes very vulnerable Mm. and relies on rely on others. And that can't be addressed legally. Um, And that's really the question we have to answer. Well, it can for minimum standards. Mm. I would say it could to some degree, but anyway, that's okay. Oh, yeah, but we've gone way past. But the box ticking is kind of ticking the wrong boxes. Well, well, the dynamic is this, isn't it? It's sort of like because the sector has been sort of under 
thought about. I don't even know if that's a sentence, but you know mm. what I mean. Mm. Under under considered. under considered. Thank you. From a policy sense, it's been underfunded. That creates a whole bunch of problems, which then generate a slew of horror stories, which then generate a royal commission, which amplifies the horror stories, and it's sort of this sort of perverse incentives thing yeah. happens, right? Where it's sort of like everybody then has this cathartic, oh, this is, you know, this is terrible. It, it must all be fixed by regulation. I mean, I don't think they'll say that, by the way. I think that would be a silly thing to say, and I, I very much doubt they'll say it. I think it'll be multifactorial. But anyway, we sort of slide down into this, you know, reductionist conversation, which is in part why we're having this conversation. But anyway, guys, we've done half an hour. Amazingly, we've done half an hour. So (laughs) we need to. Yes, well, I try. I try. No, we need to wrap. Um, I think uh, I'll get you guys back, though, as we learn a little bit more about how this is all going to pan out. So Um, can I I just leave it on this, which is and this has come from people who do polling for, for the Liberal Party and for, for companies and for NGOs. And they all say that if you go back 20 years to ten, to the year 2000, aged care did not show up in people's top 20 issues yeah. at all. Yeah. It is now consistently yeah. in the top three yeah. issues that people are worried about. So. Well, and and, and yeah. so it's worth saying when you're hearing that from a member of the government that it is a watch this space mm. from our government's point of view, this mm. is going to be front and centre, I think, for the next no, no, no. significant uh, period of time. No, but no, I think no. we, it, uh, we, we're we quite dedicated to it. So it's no, good that well, we're going to be asked back. We're well, interested well, no, in well, some no, more no, 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 no. Well, two <laughs> things. Like two things obviously have come up well up the people's priority lists just like, you know, from the not very representative field groups of uh, town halls during elections, it's mental health and aged care, right, that just dominate the conversations. And there is this confounding gap between what is happening with humans, as I mentioned before, and what's happening here. Anyway, I will get you back. Thank you very much for coming in. I really do appreciate it. Thank you to my executive producer, Miles Martignoni, who wrangles the show. Thank you to Hannah Izzard. We will be back very soon. Thank you, Catherine. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.